When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode features dramatizations and discussions of demonic possession, gore, and animal cruelty. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Please note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about Beelzebub. Today's episode combines elements from a number of legends and stories about this demonic entity for dramatic effect. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Welcome to Mythical Monsters. We explore, analyze, and share the stories of some of the world's most famous, hopefully fictional, creatures. Today's episode is the second in our month of Abrahamic creatures. Last week, we learned about the behemoth. As big as a mountain, it will show down with its sibling at the end of the world. Be sure to check out the episode if you haven't already. Today, we're discussing Beelzebub, the greatest demon prince of hell. He was blamed for the hysteria of Salem's witch trials, but he's perhaps best known as the architect of Satan's plan to seduce humanity away from God. As always, we encourage you to listen to Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals free on Spotify. The city of Rome did not sleep at night. People drank and danced at all hours. Lovers hid in alcoves. Stalls remained open for any weary travelers finally arriving in the majestic jewel of the empire. Among the crowd of late-night travelers, hidden by a scarf she'd wrapped across her face, was a 16-year-old named Lavinia on her way back from worship. Rome was her home. Her father was one of the most high-ranking senators. She enjoyed a life that few in the empire would ever know, and she was risking it all for a gospel that she felt compelled to follow, a change she knew the world needed to make. Jesus of Nazareth had been killed in Jerusalem 30 years ago, but she believed he lived again and that it was her duty to continue his work. The destruction of the rich, the rulers held accountable, all men equal before the Lord, his heavenly father. But her biological father could never know of her faith. Christians were persecuted in Rome. As the last echoes of nightlife faded away, she could feel searing eyes on the back of her head. Lavinia clutched the fabric of her tunic. Looking around, she saw nothing. Lavinia stepped down an alleyway. Her breaths were coming too fast and heavy for her to hear anything around her. Guided by nothing but faith, she moved down the street quickly, looking over her shoulder as often as she could. There was a man in the distance. She could not make out his features, but there was an ease to his body that didn't match the speed at which he moved, as if he was casually strolling while also advancing on her at a near supernatural pace. Lavinia broke out into a run, darting down an opening in a different alleyway. 
she did not hear footfalls. Lavinia peered around the corner, chancing a look back at the street. It was empty. She turned her head back. A man made of shadow was standing in front of her, close enough to kiss. She could see through his body to the rest of the street, but that did not make him less imposing. His hungry eyes glowed like coals. Transparent wings flared from his back, horns curved from his forehead. There was nowhere to run. He took a deep breath. Lavinia closed her eyes. She could hear him smelling her, his eyes lingering on her for far too long. She asked her God to protect her, her heart pounding as he bent ever closer. Lavinia took a halting step backward, hitting the wall as she backed into the shadows that descended from the high walls of a neighboring villa. A dark laugh came from several feet away. Lavinia opened her eyes. The creature was gone. John Milton's 1667 epic poem, Paradise Lost, tells the story of Lucifer's rebellion against God and its cosmic fallout. When the defeated Lucifer, now known as Satan, first arrives in hell after being cast out of heaven, he's near despondent. It's his second-in-command, Beelzebub, who helps him find the strength to reign in hell rather than serve in heaven. And it's Beelzebub who convinces the demonic host to begin the crusade to corrupt God's favorite creation, man. But before he was a character in a 17th century epic, Beelzebub was Baalzebub, the Lord of the Flies, a Philistine god worshipped in Ekron, an ancient city in Palestine. In Hebrew texts, he's conflated with both Lucifer and Satan, and in Christian tradition, he's frequently found in accounts of demonic possessions or other such deals with the devil. Beelzebub is one of many pagan entities that was quite literally demonized by his inclusion in descriptions of the host of hell. But his role as a leader and first lieutenant to Lucifer offers him a level of agency far above other malevolent forces. This reflects a begrudging admission of Baalzebub's spiritual role in Palestine before monotheism spread through the region. The name Baal simply meant Lord in several ancient Middle Eastern languages, but it was most often used to address deities seen as false gods by followers of the Abrahamic traditions such as Judaism. Zebub is often translated as flies, sometimes meaning the action of flight, and sometimes referring to the rot-loving insects themselves. In the ancient region of Canaan, now known as Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, and Palestine, Beelzebub was the god of the underworld, invoked to drive away demons of disease and death. A guide to invoking Beelzebub can be found in a remnant of the Dead Sea Scrolls, known as 4Q560. Scholars Douglas L. Penny and Michael O. Wise's analysis of the partial text suggests that exorcism and healing may not have been truly separate concepts in the mind of ancient people. Lavinia's sandals scraped against the cobblestones as she fled the strange encounter with the red-eyed shadow man. Part of her wanted to double back to the catacombs to consult her bishop, 
but the morning sun was already peeking through the veil of night. Instead, she focused on sneaking back into her house. Her parents had never supported the more fringe beliefs that had swept up her and her friends. They didn't want to see the injustices around them. So Lavinia had taken to meeting with the group in secret. She put off any trip that would lead her near the Appian Way, where strung-up bodies decayed on the side of the road. The corpses left to rot were a reminder to those that challenged the Roman social order, whether they were slaves fighting for their freedom or Christians organizing revolution while they worshipped underground. If she were found out, not even her wealthy and powerful senator father would be able to save her. Like so many that had come before her, she would be tied to a beam of wood. A rope would bind her ankles and wrists. She'd struggle against the pull of the thick braid around her throat. Her best friend Octavia had once held a fascination with these roadside displays. She told Lavinia that it took days for someone to die there, suffocated by their own weight. The condemned would struggle to stay upright as long as they could, but exhaustion would take hold. Hours and then days pass. Their bodies dropped a little lower every day until they collapsed in on themselves and moved no more. Lavinia was prepared to have her faith tested, but even she shivered at the thought of such martyrdom. Her family's guard dogs were used to her sneaking about. She'd begun by bribing them with stolen morsels of food, but now they just seemed to welcome the interruption of the too still night. She crept across mosaic-laden tile to reach the fountain in the atrium at the center of the house. She bowed to the statue of Minerva at its center out of what she told herself was habit, but she still hoped the goddess might offer her some wit for old time's sake wit that she could use to conceal her cause. As she pivoted around the fountain, she found her father, Marcus, seated, gazing into the bubbling water. Minerva stood between them, watching with still bronze eyes, waiting for him to demand to know where she'd been. When he said nothing, she ventured to speak. Have you struggled to sleep as I have, father? He nodded his head and explained he'd been woken up from a strange dream. Lavinia did not believe in the power of dreams. She'd cast that off when she'd begun her new path. But she didn't like the wild-eyed look of her father, the way the hair on his arms stood on end. He had been truly frightened by the experience. As she reached out to comfort him, she felt the soft, hairy legs of a fly touch down on her arm. The daily sacrifices to the gods would not begin for another hour, and the flies usually gathered a few hours after that, so the heat must have brought them in. She swatted at it, nearly hitting her father in the process. Marcus moved back slowly. Several flies appeared around his head. He didn't seem to notice their presence. She flicked her hand toward them, but they evaded her easily. She asked her father about the flies. He looked over at her, startled. In a sleep-heavy voice, he asked, Lavinia, when did you arrive? She opened her mouth to answer, but several flies flew in. She hacked and coughed as their small legs landed on her teeth, pushing into her throat. 
She grasped blindly for her father's hand. He stood, rooted to the tiles. His eyes seemed to look right through her as she gasped for help. The flies fluttered down her esophagus. Bile started to rise, rushing to dissolve them. She barely made it to the fountain before emptying the contents of her stomach at the base of the bust. Marcus's hands rubbed small circles into her back. He told her he would wake the servants immediately. Lavinia protested that she could clean the mess up herself. He insisted, saying she must learn to follow the natural order. She stood up slowly. There was a flush of color across her father's cheeks as though he'd been out running. It didn't fit with how eerily still he'd been almost moments before. Lavinia's mouth smelled like rot. Her teeth felt strange, and her throat throbbed with pain. She needed to clean herself up. Her father, however, kept pulling her attention. His eyes were glassy. His cheeks were still too red. He stared blankly at the wall. Nervous that she'd lost him again, she asked, Father, are you all right? Has something happened? He smiled at her, the kind of patronizing smile that always made her blood boil, and told her not to worry about him. He gave her one small squeeze and then excused himself to rouse the servants. Lavinia gathered fresh water from the well in the courtyard at the front of the house. She swirled the fluid in her mouth before spitting into the dirt. The night breeze swirled around her tunic. She wanted to linger, but the servants would already be gathering to do their work. She would not let them clean up her mess alone. With one last look at the moon, she headed back to the atrium. There were several servants hard at work. She lowered herself to her knees to help them. The water had already been thrown out, but it wasn't her waste that was giving them trouble. A swarm of flies was clinging to the tiles. They swarmed Minerva's statue and filled the drain of the fountain. The bust was almost entirely covered by the insects, but for one feature, Minerva's eyes were red, smoldering like coals, hungry, familiar. Lavinia screamed. The servants raised their heads from their work, prepared to help her, but their confused stares as she pointed at the bust of the old god told her what she already feared. There was nothing there. No flies, no fire. Only the familiar statue she'd paid tribute to since birth. She wondered if she was being haunted, if some restless spirit was trying to appear to her. The sinister man she'd seen in the streets had disappeared when she'd backed up into the dark. Everyone knew that ghosts needed torchlight in order to see the living. Lavinia made her apologies to the servants and headed for her quarters. Her hands shook as she closed the wooden doors to her room, dousing all the lights. A few hours later, the buzzing was back in her ears. She shifted on her bed, but when the noise continued, she gave up all pretense of sleep and stepped out of her room. The sound grew louder as she walked. The tile was cold against her feet. A pungent smell hit her nose, not unlike the rot that had crept up her throat the night before. She came to the courtyard in search of the hazy morning light 
that would shine off Minerva's statue. The smell was strongest here, bringing tears to her eyes. She pinched her nostrils closed and blinked furiously, trying to clear her gaze. She stumbled toward the fountain, hoping to wash the smell from her senses, but something lay in the water. At first, it just looked like a writhing black mass. As she knelt closer, however, Lavinia began to see it was a pile of buzzing flies. A few took flight, revealing a pale white eye already melting in the sun. Her breath caught in her chest. It was the corpse of one of her family's guard dogs. Up next, Lavinia discovers the source of the pestilence. Now back to the story. Lavinia feared she was losing her mind. She'd been accosted by a sinister, red-eyed figure in the streets of Rome on her way home from her secret Christian service in the catacombs. Her father was behaving strangely, and she had just found one of her family's guard dogs dead in the courtyard, consumed by buzzing black flies. She feared some magic was at work, but to consult a priestess of Juno or Vesta ran counter to everything she now believed in. She'd been taught that her Lord, Jesus Christ, could undo evil. But could he stop this? In the modern imagination, Beelzebub is best known for his role in demonic possession, manipulating events to embarrass and humiliate the purest of the pure. He suggests in Milton's Paradise Lost that he and the hosts of hell might seduce humanity to their party, growing God's disgust to the point that he might, with repenting hand, abolish his own works. The Abrahamic religions teach that there was a time when the forces of hell succeeded in their cause. God wiped the world clean in the Great Flood, leaving Noah and his descendants to begin again. But Beelzebub's work continued. The sins piled up, but some believe that humanity was handed a secret weapon. Jesus Christ taught a radical mix of justice and mercy in his time on earth. Man was not beyond saving, he said, but he must earn his salvation through faith, which was expressed by helping his fellow man. The faithful could not be rich or cruel, the path to salvation was laden with snares of selfishness and callousness. It was not a popular position with the political establishment. Many Christians were forced underground. Early church service looked more like political organizing than conventional religious practice, with leaders preaching civil disobedience against the Roman emperor. The empire responded by martyring many of them. Christians were consumed by lions in Rome's Colosseums or crucified on the side of its famous paved roads for almost 300 years. Early Christian tradition holds that there were over 100 high-profile martyrs in the second century alone. But with the conversion of Emperor Constantine in 312 BCE, Christianity became the Roman Empire's state religion. It's around this time that Beelzebub is described as a sower of political and ideological strife, destroying authority in all forms, including Christianity. 
Lavinia had to be carried out of the courtyard. She'd fallen to her knees, screaming as she stared at the carcass of her beloved pet. A servant found her and hefted her into his arms. The smell of the dog's rotting flesh would not leave her nose. She was placed onto one of the large couches in the dining room. The luxury of the soft cushions and pillows could not calm her stuttering breaths or racing heart. A plague of locusts was supposed to be the harbinger of doom. Somehow, however, it was flies that were terrorizing Lavinia and her family. Her father, Marcus, called out to her. He looked much better today. There was a healthy glow to his skin. He smelled of fine, scented oils. She smiled for the first time in nearly a day, relieved that he was in much better spirits. She ran to him, his arms wrapped around her tightly, but the smell of his oils soured up close. That rotten scent that had clung to the back of her throat was present on his skin. Small sores climbed up his neck. Lavinia asked her father if he was all right. Marcus pulled away from her embrace. He considered her for a moment before speaking. My child, there are few times in which I've felt better. Fetch me that pitcher of wine. We have much to celebrate. The Romans shall confront the Parthian Empire. Lavinia did not understand. Ever since Emperor Nero's rise to the throne, her father had done everything he could to argue against war. They were already embroiled with the Britons, who refused to acquiesce to their control, and the legions had suffered a humiliating and tragic defeat at the hands of the Parthians less than a year before. Marcus had fought day in and day out in the Senate to protect the peace talks, arguing that there were simply not enough resources to manage a war on multiple fronts. Now he stood smiling, with a trail of red wine running down his neck like freshly spilled blood. Lavinia took the cup he offered her and sipped from it slowly. She broached the subject carefully, reminding him of his earlier position. The arguments in the Senate could become violent at times, and she feared he would lose vital allies to protect him. Drops of wine stained his teeth as he spoke. I'm looking forward to a fight. My blood has been still for too long. As far as she knew, her father had never thirsted for vengeance or violence. He'd been the steady force that held the more measured senators together. He clucked his tongue at her, pulling her closer, but his voice was cold. There, there, child, you look frightened. He was right, she was frightened. This was not the man who raised her. As much as she feared for her life when it came to her religion being exposed, she had always trusted her father to be just in his other affairs. He did not court the death of others lightly. Something must have happened to turn him this way. She asked if he'd been threatened or pushed into this decision. He laughed sharply, shaking his head. The very idea that anyone could bend his will was ludicrous, insulting. She should really take more care. She untangled herself from his clutches slowly. Lavinia did not want to upset her father more by pushing a topic of discussion that he found irritating. 
she could see the tightly leashed anger beneath his skin. It was impossible, alien. She did not trust the slow smile that grew across his face. It looked nothing like him, his features horribly distorted with a mirth that did not make sense to her. He spoke again. Oh, Lavinia, we all enjoy danger in this house. You and your baptism, me and my war. Her blood ran cold. Lavinia had been careful. She'd taken every precaution. She had never taken a servant with her and always left under cover of darkness. She'd used serpentine paths to get to her meetings and hid her scriptures inside useless scrolls. It had not been enough. Her father's eyes shone with delight. Not only did he know her secret, he was excited by it. He beckoned her to hug him again. She took one tremulous step toward him, then another. He grabbed her tightly, digging his nails into her skin. She cried out in pain. He told her to relax. In a voice several octaves lower than his own, he spoke again. There should be no secrets between a child and a parent. Do not think you can keep things from me, Lavinia. I assure you, I have ways of knowing what you're up to. You, Octavia, and your other little friends. It followed that if he knew about her own secret practices, he would know about the group. But she could not stop the fear as it cascaded through her body like water through the aqueduct. She was not the only one in danger. She swore to Marcus that she would never go to a meeting again. She would renounce the religion entirely. There would be no more secrets. Marcus smiled, patting Lavinia's head softly. He didn't want her to stop. He wanted her to take him with her. She could not do that. The catacombs were not a place for non-believers. Marcus smiled patiently and said, I want to believe, daughter. I want to understand. And I will understand, whether I must ask your priest or the vigiles. He was threatening to go to the authorities. Lavinia could barely breathe. Her skin stung in his vice-like grip. He kissed her cheek and told her to wish him well as he headed to his Senate meeting. They would talk more tonight before they headed into the catacombs. Coming up, Lavinia seeks help in a dark and dangerous place. Now back to the story. Lavinia was trapped. Strange and sinister happenings had followed her and her father for days. But when he told her he intended to advise Emperor Nero to launch the empire into another doomed war with Parthia, she was sure something wasn't right. She'd been struggling with what to do when he told her he knew she was a Christian. She could take him to meet her sect in the catacombs, or he would tell the authorities. Some part of her was relieved. She knew she needed help, and if her suspicions about her father were correct, then the Christians were his only hope of liberation. The rite of exorcism dates back to ancient times and was even practiced by Jesus' ideological opponents, the Pharisees. 
In Abrahamic religions, exorcism is typified by the recitation of religious texts that glorify God, often interspersed with an interrogation of the demon in order to discover its true name or other forms of weakness. The exorcist will then invoke the name of God and other holy figures in order to expel the demon from its victim. Within the Catholic Church, these prayers are called prayers of liberation. Finding the demon's true name allows the exorcist to invoke the help of holy figures like Jesus and the Virgin Mary in a more specific way. But the greater the power of the demon, the more difficult it is to compel. Beelzebub is the most dangerous of them all, aside from Satan. According to Catholic tradition, demons have an aversion to holy water and an inability to say the names of sacred figures like Jesus and the Virgin Mary. Higher-level demons like Beelzebub are often able to resist these rules. They may cause their victims to expel viscous materials or even insects or animals from their orifices, and their initial torments of their eventual victims, also known as demonic infestation and oppression, are more horrifying waking nightmares and hallucinations rather than night terrors, poltergeist activity rather than disappearing objects. They may hide behind lesser demons, forcing the imps to take the brunt of the priest's interrogation. A highly intelligent demon from one of the more powerful, formerly angelic choirs may display supernatural knowledge of events the victim has no means of knowing about. This can sometimes make the demon appear to be as omnipotent as God. But Catholic exorcists are quick to point out that the ultimate lesson of exorcism is that God is not only omnipresent, he is stronger than his evil foe. But if accounts are to be believed, his foe is very strong indeed. Lavinia paced until nightfall. The smell of decay still followed her around. The flies were back in earnest, resting on her skin. Perhaps she was being marked for death. Before long, she too would be strung up on the Appian Way. As she waited to die, she would be forced to watch the flies using her body for breeding and nourishment before she'd even vacated it. No, her father could protect her. He might be angry with her for keeping secrets, but he loved her. Moreover, his own reputation would be damaged if he were to publicly betray her. People would begin to question his power. She was safe. She would be safe. She had to believe that, if he still was her father. His eyes glinted red like coals as he donned his cape. Lavinia stumbled out of the house in a sort of trance, unsure if she was headed to heaven or hell. In the past, Lavinia had taken small comfort in the underground tunnels, Sure, they were surrounded by the dead, but these were Christians buried as Christians wanted to be, a sepulcher that ensured her path to heaven if she followed the Lord's way on earth. Her father did not speak as they made their way by torchlight. She knew the path by heart, drawn by the soft light and warmth of their improvised church. But there was so much cold at her back now, as if she hadn't barred the hidden entrance to the caves, leaving their unseen refuge open to the night wind. When she turned back to check, 
The door was closed, but her father's eyes were glowing, red and hollow. She ducked her head and turned back, telling herself she would be in the hands of her priest soon. He would know what to do. Her priest, Peter, was old, older than any man she'd ever seen. He spoke Latin with a Galilean accent, and his hair was gray and black and curly, his eyes dark and striking. He told the stories of Jesus as if he'd been there. Lavinia chose to believe it was true. Her father did not. He did not wait to be introduced, greeting her leader by name. St. Peter, how very strange to find you in this hole in the ground. The old man shook his head humbly. I am no saint, demon, and God can be found in all places. Lavinia's father laughed, except in front of your nose, it seems. A rumble ran through the small group. Was this stranger implying he was a god? Their god? The flames of the torches leapt for a moment, revealing Marcus's face. The Christians jumped back even further. A senator? Here? They'd seen him address the populace, but now he was in their midst, their clandestine place. Peter shushed them gently, asking Marcus his intention. Marcus smiled and said, Your utter devastation, Nazarene. No more, no less. Even Peter froze at this. The cold darkness of the man's voice, the strange echoes from within his chest, these were not sounds a human could make. Peter moved slowly but deliberately toward Marcus until they were nose to nose. Then he nodded to his two companions, also from Jerusalem. They grabbed Lavinia's father. She yelped and protested, begging Peter to tell her what he was doing with him, but Peter paid her no mind. He was already blessing the water in the jug they used for baptisms. He dumped it over Marcus's head. The senator only laughed. His voice rattled in his ribcage as he spoke. You are not your friend, priest. If I feared you, do you think I would have come? You who denied him before his death and lead his false church now? Lavinia had never seen any tension in Peter's body. The man did not anger. But he was wrathful now. He demanded Marcus give him his name. Lavinia tried to explain that her father was sick, but Marcus spoke first, eyes locked on Peter. Beelzebub, Saint, the true lord of all's greatest lieutenant. I've come to look my pathetic counterpart in the eye before I destroy his last rebellion. Peter's voice was calm but firm. He said, Demon, the power of Christ compels you to repeat after me. Eternal Father, you are my creator and I adore you. The creature laughed. Peter repeated himself. Eternal Father, you are my creator and I adore you. The cave began to shake. The thing living inside of Lavinia's father spat out black, writhing bile and growled. 
You think imitating your dead messiah will save you when actually your suffering has just begun. Peter looked to Lavinia and told her to pray, to speak for Marcus, wherever he was, to remind him that though he did not know the Lord, the Lord knew him. He could not do this alone. Beelzebub was thrashing now, fighting against the two men from Jerusalem as they poured the water on his skin. He grit his teeth and said, I am no mere imp, little saint, pathetic future martyr. I can invoke the Lord the same as you. I can mock his not-quite-virgin mother. And in the same breath, I can tell you that you will die as your Savior did, on the cross, not sixty days from now. The dark thing chortled to itself at the great cosmic joke of having to answer to a human like him. It continued, The sky will burn. You will be blamed by the Inferno's architect. You will try to run away first. You always try to run. It nearly wheezed in dry humor, carried away by laughter before struggling for breath again. I will laugh as you drown under your own weight on the Appian Way, hung upside down since even the Romans know that you, a coward, do not deserve to die like your revenant god. For the first time, Peter seemed troubled. His voice shook before catching in his throat. Lavinia rushed forward, throwing her arms around her father, begging him to say it with her. Eternal Father, you are my creator and I adore you. The demon thrashed even more, screaming as rocks and bones slipped loose from the walls. Lavinia squeezed her eyes tight. Finally roused from his stupor, Peter chanted the words with her. The thing inside her father's body screamed. And then it all went quiet. Marcus's head was bent, his chest heaving, but the darkness seemed to be gone. He lifted his eyes slowly, old bones creaking with exhaustion. He smiled softly and said, I think I'm beginning to see the appeal of your friends, Lavinia. Peter breathed out in a weary whisper, God be praised. Lavinia threw her arms around her father's neck, squeezing him tight. He winced but nodded appreciatively. But as she and his followers helped carry Peter and Marcus from the catacombs and into the summer night, they were met with a vision of hell. Two of the seven hills were bathed in orange and red as wild flames raced through alleys and streets, chasing after families fleeing for their lives in their nightclothes. Rome was burning. The demon had been right. The historical facts of St. Peter's life are very much in contention, but early Christian tradition holds that he evangelized in Rome before Emperor Nero blamed him and his followers for the Great Fire of Rome in 64 BCE. 
uncanonized Hebrew and Christian texts dating from the writing of the New Testament, loosely referred to as the New Testament Apocrypha, say that Peter tried to flee the city after the fire, but Jesus appeared to him, saying that he himself was heading to Rome to be killed again. Peter chose to follow his God and was crucified as part of Nero's failed attempt to redirect suspicions that he himself set the fire. While the near purging of Christians from Rome was a major blow to the early church, Peter's death became a rallying cry for early Christians. In his own time, the Pharisees accused Jesus Christ of enlisting the help of Beelzebub during his own exorcisms. According to the Gospels, Jesus says it would not matter. As the Apostle Matthew writes, He knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is wasted, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan throws out Satan, he is divided against himself. So how will his kingdom stand? Before Christianity took hold, Beelzebub was described as the prince of all spirits, regardless of their potential ill intent or benevolence. With this in mind, one could look at the use of Beelzebub's name during both invocations and exorcisms as a kind of threat to speak to the demon's manager, because Beelzebub is a true authority, the true adversary. Even Catholic exorcists confirm this hierarchical dynamic today, saying that lesser demons obey the princely masters not out of fealty, but of fear. While the fallen angels still hold memories of many of their hierarchies and former roles in divine choirs, exorcists and theologians report unrest in the infernal ranks. Beelzebub is not always Satan's loyal servant. He leads rebellions against him, and he thinks nothing of bending lesser demons to his will, hiding behind them as he possesses members of God's favorite creation. There are many reasons we externalize the concepts of evil and chaos. It's easier to think of the conflict between our worse and better natures as a battle between who we are and who some separate monstrous creature wants us to be. We're allowed to believe in our innate goodness, a goodness that Jesus gave his life on earth for, if the teachings of the Bible are to be believed. Beelzebub has come a long way from Canaanite prayers for health and protection, but in some ways, he still fulfills the same cultural purpose. He's a balm against the inevitable. Death comes, decay comes, evil makes its way in the world, it's comforting to think of these forces as governed by a being we rarely see outside of our nightmares. It's scarier to think that our worst impulses come from us alone. But the alternative is far more frightening thanks to his scale and power. People can hopefully be reasoned with. Beelzebub and his subordinates can only be denied temporarily before they attack again. You can choose not to believe, but as French author Charles Baudelaire wrote in 1864, the loveliest trick of the devil is to persuade you that he doesn't exist.
Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Aaron Larson, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 